We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I'd like you to look at that text that Charlie read to you in Mark chapter, uh, let's see, 10 and verse 32 and following. My son Benjamin and his wife Amanda are here with us this morning. They're four kids, my four grandkids. I told them after the service, I'm going to give them a, uh, an oral test. I said, high point man wins a $20 bill. So if you see some kids abnormally attentive, <laughs> those are my grandkids, okay? This text in verse 32 and following is an interesting text it is a text that you never can fully obey. All you can do is look at it like the Mona Lisa and just marvel at its beauty. And it's kind of like horseshoes. You just try to get close. That's all. Because nobody can get there all the way. It is a seismic shift in the training of the 12 on what leadership and greatness really is. The Gentiles love to call themselves benefactors, but they lord over those under them, and they love to take authority. It's not to be so with you men. We're about to have a tectonic shift in what you think leadership is, that I am not impressed at fame. I am impressed at greatness, and they're not the same. And so this is going to be in the training of the twelve. It is a highly guilt-ridden text. Let's continue because it puts you in your place. In verse 32, it's an odd verse in chapter 10. It says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. This has been a period in the training of the 12 called the withdrawals. We have not been in Jerusalem because they're seeking his life. And it's not time for him to die. The time of the spring and the Passover has come around. As he will say in John 17, the hour has come. And so now the hour has come and he's going to Jerusalem. He has on two occasions and now on a third, he has told what awaits him in Jerusalem. Betrayal, spitting, scourging, scorning, and death and resurrection. That's waiting for me. And so this is the 101st Airborne going into uh, D-Day. I'm heading there, and I know what's waiting on me. And so in verse 32, they're heading down this road, and it says Jesus is walking on ahead of them. He's like David running to the battlefield to face Goliath. And Saul's saying, He's been a warrior from his youth. You're a good shepherd, that's all. But David runs to the battle line, and that's the way that Jesus is doing. And as a result, in verse 32, they are amazed. He has this uncommon courage that he is walking fast to a cross. And so they just look in amazement at this man's resilience. It's in the, at this text that Thomas makes that famous quote in the book of John, let us all go with him to Jerusalem that we might die with him there. Thank you, Eeyore. Okay. So that's kind of the way Thomas is. He is uh, 
You don't show him baby pictures as to how pretty they are because he'll tell you what the child looks like Winston Churchill. (laughs) And so in verse 32, they are amazed. The book of, of Isaiah says of Messiah, he will set his face like flint and give his beard to be plucked and his back to be striped. So he's walking into a holocaust and he's walking fast. And it says they were fearful. This is the first time in the disciples' life that it ever says they're afraid of anything. Up until now, the only thing they have feared has been Christ, who can calm the winds and the waves. But all of this talk about death and torture is starting to come home. And you can see them saying, this Christ stuff is getting real serious. They're talking about killing him, and he's talking about us accompanying him. And so for the first time, they're finding out it's heating up. They're afraid. And because of this, in verse 32, Jesus calls them to the side, and he says, boys, take a knee, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. What he's going to do is tell them everything that's going to happen to them, because he knows, and this is a comfort that what's going to happen is not going to be pleasant, but it is essential. And I'm there, and I know what's going to happen. He is going to tell them that he knows, in just a moment, when they're going to die. He knows how they're going to die. He knows what they're to be doing up until that time, and he knows when it will occur. Is that a comfort to us? It is. I know everything that's going to happen to you. I may not always be pleased, but I'm never perplexed. I see it coming. And so he calls them to the side and he says, don't be afraid. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, number one, verse 33. And then the son of man, and that is a title from Daniel 7 about the Messiah. It's Christ's favorite term for himself. Daniel chapter 7, and I saw one like the son of man descending from heaven And he was presented before the Ancient of Days, and a kingdom was given to him, and all things put under his feet. Jesus says, I'm this man. I'm the Omega man. I'm going to win. But here's the path I'm going to take. I'll be delivered to the chief priest. Normally, that word delivered in the Greek is translated betrayed. One of you is going to turn me over to the chief priest. You're going to arrange it when we're alone that I can be arrested and not cause an outburst and a diversion. So one of you is going to betray me. And they will condemn him to death. I'm actually going to be tried by the Sanhedrin, and I in whom there is no guilt, I will be found guilty of high crime. So I'm telling you the way the trial is going to end before I ever go to trial. And then they will literally betray him to the Gentiles. Judas will hand him over to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin will hand him over to the Romans. And he will be, quote, crucified by the hands of wicked men. And he will pray, Father, forgive them, these soldiers. They know not what they do. So I see it already. And he says they will mock him, and it happened. 
They will spit on him, and it happened. They will scourge him, that will happen. And they will kill him, and that will happen. Let me ask you, does Christ know when you will die? Does he know how you will die? Does he know what you're going to be doing until you die and know when that will be? He's got it all under control. And so three days later, he will rise from the dead. Now, I want to show you, does that sound unclear to you? It isn't. But if you'll look to your right at Luke 18, a parallel passage. And in Luke 18, in verse 31, he took the 12 aside and said, and in verse 31, 32, 33, you see the parallel passage. And if you'll look in verse 34, it tells you something that Matthew and Mark don't tell you. That's why it's good that you have four Gospels. And the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were being said. An English teacher would have counted off in verse 34 for redundancy. Didn't understand, hidden, didn't comprehend. Those are words used not for the intelligence of men, but the fact that they are men living with a divine person, and he is saying things that are above them. The, the key term they don't understand, they understand mocking, scourging, killing. Rising from the dead, that is called in Latin, a, I believe it's called a su generis, S-U-I generis, and it means it's an entity that stands by itself. There's nothing to compare it to. The truth of it comes out of itself, su generis. He told them something that they have no way of reconciling it to experience. That I am a divine person and my death is not a normal death. It's for others. And I am condemned for what I didn't do. And I will rise from the dead. They didn't understand that. If you're going to rise from the dead, why are you going to die? And if you have that kind of power, why are you going to let them beat you? And so it doesn't click. I, I've shared this a number of times about my own testimony. That a guy came to my room. He said to my roommate, what are you? He said, I'm a Christian. He said to my roommate, what is a Christian? And my roommate gave him the answer I would have given. It's somebody that keeps the Ten Commandments. And he said to my roommate, you keep them. And there was silence because he was guilty as I. And then this guy says to my roommate, the Ten Commandments weren't given to us to live by. They were given to us as a mirror of the character of God to show we can't live by them. And that is why Jesus had to follow and die to gain victory. It was not a defeat. It was a victory. He didn't die because he wasn't quick enough to get out of Jerusalem. He died because he was dying for you. And all of a sudden, so generous, I understood it. And the lights came on. And I didn't become a Christian. But I said I ought to. And I listened. It, the lights came on. And my life was never the same. Well, these men can't quite, if you say to anybody, is Jesus Christ God and did he rise from the dead? 
whenever they say, I don't know, they automatically can't understand anything that came up to it. They don't understand his incarnation. They don't understand his perfect life. They don't understand his being betrayed, dying, suffering, much less rising from the dead. All of the acts leading to a supernatural result. They can't figure them out. And so whenever that guy said that, the Ten Commandments don't save. Jesus died and rose, and he can now save you. The lights came on. I understood the relationship between Charlton Heston and Jesus Christ. All right. <laughs> between Moses and the New Testament. Now it clicked. One of the great proofs of Christianity is that the early Christians don't believe it. What problem did the disciples have? Answer with Christianity. That he's dying for me. They couldn't grasp that. So generous. We have nothing to lead us to that notion. And so that'd be a good test question. Okay. S-U-I-G-E-N-E-R-I-S. Okay. And so in verse uh, 35, after this statement, we're going to know in verse 35 that they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. The fact that the Son of God became a Son of Man, that sons of men might become sons of God through his death, is the most impacting of all ideas. Amen? And when you know that, it now changes the entire perspective that you have of reality. If the Son of God would die upon a cross for me, then what can I not humble myself to do for anybody else? When you don't know that, you don't really have really the hand of God about your heart. And so these men can't figure it out. And so they ask a, a ridiculous question. In verse 35, James and John, two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do whatever for us, whatever we ask. Now, let me stop just a second here. Do y'all know who they bring with them? According to Matthew 20, in verse 20, they brought somebody with them to hit on Jesus, to gain clout, to get him to do what they wanted him to do. Anybody know who it is they bring? Mama. They bring their mother. <laughs> if you're ever going to recruit in college football, you know you don't have to convince the kid. You got to convince mama. That's why Barry Switzer, they said, was one of the greatest recruiters of all time from the University of Oklahoma. Where is he? Okay. Because he could talk to mama that I'm going to take care of your baby, all 310 pounds of him. I'm going to take care of him. Well, now this is something interesting. We know what the woman's name is. The woman's name is Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E. Do you know who she is? When I was young, I heard a guy preach named W.A. Criswell. Y'all know who I'm talking about? Pastor at First Baptist Dallas. When I was young, and I heard him preach on this, and he said... Salam came to our Lord and made a request for after all, he, she was the sister of Mary and these two boys were his cousins. 
And I went, the heck you say? And I spent a lot of my Christian life trying to find out, and then I found out he was exactly right. Whenever it gives a list of the women of Galilee in the north that followed Jesus, it'll go down the list of these women. Mary Magdalene, the most famous, and Mary, mother of James the Less, on down this list. And then it will say, Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E, Salome, Salome, the mother of James and John. But in one of the narratives, it gives the list of these women, and it doesn't say Salome, wife of Zebedee, mother of James and John. It simply says Salome, I'm sorry, it doesn't say her name, it just says Mary's sister. And it leaves out the name Salome and substitutes Mary's sister. And so this is why W.A. Criswell said this, and this is why scholars believe this. Because, and this is the impact of the text, if you know history, whenever there is a changing of the guard, you now have people on the outside lobbying for position. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said the most difficult thing about being president was the line of people that were coming in because to the victor goes the spoils. The spoil system, we now have a new bunch of government employees. The old is out, the new is in, and they're all currying favor to get in there to get an appointment. And so they're dropping names. And whenever you look at history with Edward VI and James II and Henry VIII, you'll always find what is called nepotism. Y'all know what nepotism is? It's nephewism, literally. You're always trying to get a nephew in there. This, incidentally, have you ever heard of clerical celibacy, priestly celibacy, why priests can't marry? It was made in the Middle Ages because they were afraid of it. It wasn't a biblical point. They were afraid that priests would get their little bishoprics and they would now marry and start having kids and they would take over and they'd put them in charge of stuff and they would be on the church dole and pretty soon you would have these little fiefs, these little, uh, what would you call it? Serfdom, feudalism. You would now have these feudal fiefs of these priests with their kids and they would start taking over. And so they said, nip it in the bud. That's not funny, but that's what they did. All right. We're not going to let you marry, so we don't have to worry about your kids. Church leadership can still have charge over who they appoint. That's where it came from, because that's the story of history. And so whenever you see this ultimate statement of servanthood, I'm about to go down and die for you. And then in the very next breath, you see two cousins, all right? And these would be Mary's nephews coming up to Jesus. I'm going to sick your mama's sister on you. And they're going to come up to get a position in the kingdom. Are they thinking cross, death, and resurrection? They're thinking glory. So this is an old, old story. The question is, what's going to be said? Y'all ever read the book, The Godfather, by Mario Puzo? 
The Godfather was a takeoff on the Borgia family of popes in the Middle Ages. Rodrigo Borgia and all the rest. And it was what the Godfather was based on, was the Borgia family. And so it got to be a bloodbath. So this has cursed the church. Is there ever a problem in churches today of putting on men in leadership simply because of their secular and worldly pomp and not because of their character? Yeah, don't call out addresses or anything, all right? But it's been a problem from a long time back. Simony, buying church office, and nepotism. So we're seeing this happen right in front of us. Here comes Jesus's two cousins, and here comes Aunt Salome, and we're going to get in there, and my babies need to be next to you, okay? Incidentally, if you're thinking about it, this is the most dynamic family in the history of man. Think about this. Who is Mary's cousin? Her name is Elizabeth. She's got a husband named Zacharias. That's the first man that an angel appears to to announce the coming of their child, whose name is John the Baptist, who is going to be Mary's nephew. No, second cousin. Elizabeth is her cousin. This is second cousin. This is Kentucky, Tennessee, we're talking about. Right? <laughs> and so, yeah, they're down in Jerusalem, but they're connected. Okay. And so you've got Elizabeth and Zacharias, John the Baptist, and you've got Mary, Elizabeth's cousin, and she is married to Joseph, who is the man who would be king. You ever thought what it was like to be Joseph, a direct descendant of David, in line to be king, but you can't be because the Greeks and the Romans took over. And so you are a manual laborer, and you come down to the feast of Jerusalem, you look at the temple complex, and you say to Mary, that's where we would have been if it wasn't for Dern Rehoboam. That's where we would have been. And so you have Mary, you have Joseph, the Davidic king, and then you have their kid, Jesus. And then you have Jesus's aunt, Mary's sister, named Salome, and you've got a couple of cousins. You've got James and you've got John. James was the first apostle to die in Acts 12, put to death by Herod and beheaded. John was the last apostle to die after he had concluded the most prolific writing of all the apostles. Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. What's your last book? Revelation. So you've got James and John, the first to die and the last to die. And she also, Mary has a couple of other sons. One is named James, who is the leader of the Jerusalem church, that at the first church council of Jerusalem on whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised, stood up and said, no, God has included the Gentiles. And Peter came in and seconded it. And we dealt with that by Jesus' little brother. And he also, James, wrote the first Christian epistle. Chronologically, what is the first Christian epistle? It's the book of James written in 44 AD, Paul could have read it before he got converted. Uh, they killed him by throwing him off the temple, breaking his neck, and then beating him to death with garden implements. They called him old camel knees because he was known for praying. 
And so that's Jesus's little brother, James. He wrote the first Christian epistle. He had another little brother named Jude. You ever read that in your New Testament? It's right before Revelation, the book of Jude. He was an author too. Uh, and then the bow of your Bible is Revelation written by John. And then he had two brothers named Simon and Joseph. And we don't know what happened to them, but they were there at Pentecost converted. And it said he had sisters. We don't know how many, but they were there also at Pentecost converted. All together, you come up with 11 significant people. And that includes the last Old Testament prophet, the first New Testament writer, the last New Testament writer, Jude, as far as the, in the canon and the canon, it's the last Old Testament writer, and then John that puts the bow on the end of the Bible. So from the beginning, the middle, to the end of the Bible was the stamp of Mary and Joseph. Isn't that something? It's the ultimate family. And when Jesus died, now he went and adopted a couple of billion people. And they became now children of God by a rebirth, the majority of which are sitting in this room as we speak. So the Old Testament funnels down to one guy in a crib and it opens up into Calcutta, New York, and Beijing. That is amazing. What a God. Well, that'll make a good test question. Okay. And now in verse 36, this request of Salome, let me ask you, this is a test question for you. Is there another occasion in the Bible that a king is approached by a woman named Salome? Uh, and the king, she dances pretty good. And the king says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you, even up to half my kingdom. Who's the king? Herod. And Herodias is his wife. This is their, her kid, his stepkid, Salome. And she says, I would like something. Can I have it? Half my kingdom. That's how men get affected by erotic dancers. Okay. Half my kingdom you can have. Uh, Jesus is unlike this king. He doesn't get moved by this stuff. His Salome says, I would like you to do whatever I ask. But we're not dealing with Herod here that hands out favors. He says to her in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Let's have some terms. What do you want? I don't let people lobby with me. You get where you are because you deserve it. What would you like me to do? Verse 37, darling, that's in the living Bible. <laughs> Baby, grant that we, Jimmy and uh, Johnny, Jackie to his friends. Grant that we may sit on your right and on your left in your, what's the word? Glory. What did Jesus talk about in verse 33 and 34? Was it glory? No, it was gore, not glory. We don't want the pain, but we would like the uh, ticker tape parade. And so, grant that they can sit in your glory. This is your typical mother wanting great things for her babies. Okay. In verse 38, 
It's a great verse. Jesus said, I love this, you don't know what you're asking for. Madam, you have no idea what you're asking. I don't hand out positions. I'm not Warren G. Harding. Okay. You earn the right that the Father bestows. I don't hand these out. You have no understanding what you're asking for. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? The cup that Christ drinks is judgment. I'm going to be seen as a guilty man. Will he open his mouth to defend himself? No. That's the hardest thing a male has to do. It's to be innocent, accused by underlings, and you take it and never open your mouth. Trust me, that is the hardest thing for a man to do. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. I'd have, I'd have followed him if he was just a man. That's a man. And so he says, you don't know what you're, you've got to drink a cup and you, then you've got to be baptized with a baptism. You've got to die and come up. So are you willing to be guilty and die? Are you willing to do that? In verse 39, we are able. You know, if you ever go on a military base, if you ever go to West Point, Air Force, Annapolis, you may notice somebody that never initiates a salute. Whenever you go into the military, my son Ben told me this, he said, the first thing they teach you is who to salute. They got to show you a chain of authority. And when you're a private, that's basically every living being. You salute. If you, you salute it, if it doesn't move, you paint it. Okay. <laughs> and so you just salute. But there's one person on a military base that never has to salute. He returns a salute, but if he's with a five-star general, he does not have to salute. The, the general will salute him, provided that you see on him a little bar on his chest, or it may be around his neck. And it's a blue bar with about five or six white stars. Anybody know what that is? It's called the Medal of Honor. And it's not when you die in combat, it's where you willingly are above and beyond and you throw your life away for your brother. Greater love hath no man. When you step out, in other words, Forrest Gump, that's what you're thinking, okay. When you will go back into the burning jungle without your weapon, because it'll slow you down, with enemy all around you, and you will pick up your wounded comrades and run them back out to the river and then keep going back until finally I got to get Bubba. You get Bubba and Lieutenant Dan out of there. And then you get the, the jungle explodes in fire as you're getting the last man out and you get shot in the left buttock. <laughs> Is anybody with me? <laughs> then you get the Medal of Honor. Okay. Uh, you ever seen about the one about the corpsman from Lynchburg, Virginia at Hacksaw Ridge? The Seventh-day Adventist, conscientious objector, became a medic, essentially. And he kept going back and getting men, lowering them over a cliff 
and putting himself in harm's way and save them. You get the Medal of Honor. And so suppose that you go onto a military base and say, man, a Medal of Honor guy, he doesn't have to salute nobody. I'd like to get one of them. I would say, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't order them on Amazon. You don't get one down at the store. Generally, it's best to be married so we can find your widow. Because generally, that award is given to a widow. It's posthumous. So you have to be willing to die at the hands of the enemy. Then you get the Medal of Honor. And that's what Christ is saying. You guys want the Medal of Honor. You have no idea what you're asking. We're seeing an enormous shift in leadership. You don't get to be the bishop because your uncle was the pope and he made you the bishop and you're all of eight years old. That happened. We're going to make you the leader. We're not going to do that. You're going to earn the right to be there. He said in verse 40, but to sit on my right hand and left, I'm sorry, in verse 39, he says, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized. James died first, John died last. He said, you will drink of this. I know how long you're going to live. I know what you're going to be doing. I know how you're going to die and I know when you're going to die. So be of good cheer. I have everything under, it's given to a man to die once and after this judgment. Jesus said when he went to the cross, Father, the hour has come. Now it's time. And so, it's for those that it has been prepared. It is what the Father's pleasure is. You don't go around him to get to Jesus. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant. Now let me show you something. That same word indignant is used about Jesus a, a chapter earlier. When they brought children to him and the 12 said, get them kids out of here, they're a nuisance. And it said, Jesus became indignant. I don't like you condescending on well-meaning people. The kingdom belongs to some as this. And so he jumped up like a white knight and he said, no, you bring those kids to me. He was indignant. Here they get indignant because somebody is considered greater than them. One scholar said this, you can tell much about a man by what makes him angry. Jesus doesn't like people being condescended upon. The disciples don't like people being greater than they are. So did they really understand the cross? They didn't. Well, in verse 42, he says, boys, you're acting like the people you despise. Calling them to himself, training of the 12. Boys, take a knee. Have y'all ever felt that your Christian life is doing this? That Christ is always saying, hey, you messed up again. Take a knee. I need to inform you about something. We're going to reform back to David and Noah and the Old Testament. We're going to recover what a hero is. You know those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles? The book of Luke says they have a term called benefactor. Bueno, bono, a good doer. They love that title, benefactor. But they love position. 
They love to lord it over. They love power to exercise authority. He says, fellas, the people you can't stand the most are what you're trying to become. You're just naive enough to think this is greatness, and it's not. He says in verse 43, it's not this way among you. Just write down, get used to different. Because that's what he says. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servants. The Greek word diakonos, we get deacon. It means you're the servant usually of one man. You're his servant. You will be a servant. Question, servant of who? Servant of God. And here is who you'll serve. Verse 44, who wishes to be first shall become, it's not the word diakonos, it's the word doulos that means a slave. You're the servant of one and you're the slave of everybody. There is no job too low. There is no person too small. And there is no elevation too great that you will not do. You know what's interesting? In every gospel that this is mentioned, it's followed by verse 46 through verse 52, where a blind beggar any of y'all ever been to Jerusalem? Steve, you've been there? Rosie, you've been there. Where were you, Steve? We're watching TV. Oh, amen. Okay. <laughs> you remember, Rosie, we'd see a lot of beggars over there, and it's the ultimate homelessness. It's bad. And here comes a beggar whose name is Bar Timaeus. Every gospel tells you his name, Bar Timaeus. Bar means the son of. Time means honor. You want to give and name a kid Timotheos to honor God, Timothy. Here's blind Bartimaeus, the lowest guy, and he asked the highest thing. Son of David, he says, come here. And he starts coming. You know what everybody does? Look at verse 48. What's it say? Many were sternly telling him to shut up. Question, had they learned the lesson yet? No. But he kept crying all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, you want to see three of the greatest words in the New Testament? What do they say? Jesus stopped. Stop right there. Everybody circle up. It's learning time again. Verse 49 Take courage. He's calling you. He said, call the man. I'm not going to condescend on a man. I'll take the lowest guy, and he's going to ask something of me. Verse 51, how's it begin? What do you want me to do for you? Where did you see that? You saw that in verse 36. What kind of person says that? It's the waitress at Chewy's. What can I do for you? That's a servant. Who did Jesus say that to? Aunt Salome. Who did Jesus say that to? A blind beggar. Shut him up. Bring him here. What can I do for you? I would like my sight. Wouldn't we all? I would like to be able to see. Done. Why? You came in faith. It's done. That always follows who will Christ serve? Who is the son of honor? The lowest man. 
What will he give? The highest gift. For what? Nothing, he called out. And that's what we're called to be. Servants of God, slaves to all. Come, blind man, what can I do? I'd like to see you again. Done. Done. I'm here for you. Y'all ever heard of Billy Sunday? The greatest of the 1920s, 30s evangelist. He got led to faith when he was in the midst of an alcoholic stupor. And there was a young girl that was handing out advertisements of a gospel presentation who was mentally handicapped and all that she could do was hand out the flyer. And she found him sitting inebriated on a curb and she handed it to him. He read it, went, got saved, became the leading evangelist of the first half of the 20th century. Dwight Moody applied to become a member of the church in Chicago. He was so tongue-tied that they turned him down. He couldn't explain his salvation. He had a Sunday school teacher that had cancer. He knew his time was short, and he liked the attitude he saw in this young man. And he sat him on a park bench, and he said, Dwight, you ain't got much, but what you got, God can use. And God has yet to see, the world has yet to see what God can do with one man totally committed to him. Young Dwight Moody, that became the greatest evangelist by the second half of the 19th century, was converted by that doctor. So, who's to say? So he says, bring him to me. Well, in verse 45, you want an example? Let's don't look to the Romans. Verse 45, who's the new example of leadership? Grandkids, this is a question, I'll guarantee you. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We've got a new standard. We got a cross. I taught one time a Fellowship of Christian Athlete Conference. College football players, the most arrogant human beings in the face of planet Earth. And I told them the story of Jesus washing men's feet. And I simply said to those men, if Jesus Christ can wash men's feet, then you can, and I had them write down on a three by five card, then you can blank their blank. If Christ can wash men's feet, then you can blank men's blank. And I had them turn and get in little groups of three. I said, I want you to write down what you're going to do Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. You're going to be like Jesus. If he can wash men's feet, then you can blank their blank. And I made them write down what they would do. Some guys would put, I can clean their rooms. I can scrub their commodes. One guy said that out of a group of 500. <laughs> one, guy, one guy said, I can, I can talk with his uh, daughters. I said, no, that won't work right there. <laughs> One guy said, if he can wash men's feet, I can go get Tom Nelson coffee at 6 a.m. And he did. One said, I can carry this guy. We had a kid that his legs, we was on crutches. His legs, a congenital problem. He said, I can piggyback him. And he carried the guy around all week. 
I can stand in line and get their food. I can clean up their tray. I can sweep up after them. I can give them my chair. They had to pick of what they were going to do in service. And you know, at the end of that retreat, I had a woman come up to me that worked in the cafeteria at that place down around Cedar Hill. And she came to me and she said, who are these men? It was like a holy order of Jesuits, you know. I've never seen men like this. And I said, yes, ma'am, they've, they've been threatened. <laughs> they have to imitate Jesus for 72 hours. And I had guys tell me after that weekend, it was the greatest weekend of their life. They said, I remember this one guy, he was a University of Texas offensive lineman. And he said, it was the first time I could drop my facade and I could be what I was meant to be, a servant. Whenever you look at the creation, you see the servanthood of God. When God said it is good, was that good for him? God doesn't need anything. The air you breathe, the firmament, who needs that? We do. The CO2 we give off, who needs that? Plants. The bodies we have that assimilate the things that grow from seeds fed by minerals in the dirt that get wet and osmosis occurs and we have teeth to cut and tear and grind and swallow it. Do y'all know what peristaltic action is? It's the little wave-like action that carries the thing all the way down to your belly. You ever had the problem that it went in reverse? It's a memorial experience. If you didn't have peristaltic, it would stop halfway. You got a little deal flap right here that changes between air and Whataburgers. <laughs> and if it gets mixed up, you are going to hack like a goat for about an hour. Isn't that marvelous? You've got little alveoli that take in that oxygen that'll put it into blood. That'll, you've got a, a system that'll take off the waste. You ever had that thing shut down on you? That'll make you a man of prayer right there. <laughs> you got fingers that are uneven until you close, and they all work like a cam with greater power. You got an opposable thumb where you can actually create. You have hair on your eyebrow that runs uphill. Did y'all know that? You didn't know that because you were not a phys ed major like me. <laughs> when you sweat, it hits a little siphon and it'll run it right off the side of your eye and it won't get in your eye. You got lashes that'll keep stuff out. You got a fluid that'll flush stuff off. Who makes a human like that? A heavenly Father, he is good. Well, how can I know him? I'm a sinner. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served. I'm sorry, not to be served, but to serve. I mess that up. <laughs> Grandkids, that is not a test question. Okay. <laughs> he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life 
a ransom for many. That's called a servant. But you still ain't going to know him. He can die all day for your sins, but you'll never trust him until the Holy Spirit of God convinces you, illumines you, converts, seals, and keeps you. That's called the servanthood of God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're wrapped in the fetal sack of divine servanthood. And that's what heaven's going to be, is seeing this magnificent person. Okay? And so, would you like to find out who you are? Serve. Serve. If Jesus Christ can wash men's feet, then you can blank their blank. Want to find out who you are? Let's celebrate communion. Father in heaven, for just a moment, we'll stop and we'll remember you and what you have done for us. We'll remember the grace of God, our creator, the grace of Jesus Christ, our redeemer, the grace of the Holy Spirit, the comforter that comes in the Son's name that would convince us of sin, lead us to Christ, convert our souls, illumine the Bible, gift us for ministry, interpret our prayers to heaven uh, that would grant us an intuitive love that we could experience, whether it's Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, the architect, the builder, or the real estate salesman. You are a servant to your creation. Thank you. Even the angels, the angelos, the messengers were to bring truth to us. Thank you. We think of that one angel that resented servanthood and has brought a world of darkness and pain. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, in the training of the 12, you'd reorient us and we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.